You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Last week we saw from Hebrews chapter 10, the better sacrifice that Jesus offers, talking about the the effects of his sacrifice, the effects of his blood specifically being shed, and how it gives us full assurance of our salvation. It releases any need for us to offer sacrifices ourselves um, and empowers us to live obediently while we encourage others to do the same. We saw that through the mandate to continue meeting together, to stir each other up to good works, to encourage each other. We talked about uh, from a positional standpoint that Jesus' sacrifice makes us perfect forever, even though we are on a daily basis being made perfect. Um, And so the Bible presents this idea that positionally we are viewed as being sanctified already, even though we are ongoingly being sanctified on a daily basis, but it reminds us that our salvation is secure. Um, We talked about being empowered to obey God by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life without the need for personal sacrifices. And I tried to challenge you to think in terms of, man, I know nobody is tempted to bring an animal sacrifice today for their sins, But if we're not careful, we do fall into the trap of thinking that we do certain spiritual things like it's a sacrifice, right? Like you you hear somebody say, man, I've been involved in this. I really need to get back into church as though coming to church is some type of sacrifice that makes up for things that you've been doing. Or if we're not careful, we think once we've committed a sin that the first thing we need to do is run to our Bibles, not because we need to cling to the promises of God, but because we need to go through this spiritual act of reading the Bible, and that makes us feel better because we've done something good to replace the thing that we did bad. We have to be very careful that we're not using things in our life as a form of sacrifice to try to atone for our sins, that Jesus' sacrifice is what atones for our sins. We talked about experiencing full assurance of our salvation, that we shouldn't have doubts, that we can have full assurance, and we should attack any reason for our doubts. Uh, we talked about avoiding ongoing patterns of disobedience that would call us, cause us to fall away. And then we talked about recalling our former days of obedience to ensure that we continue to persevere in obedience today. And so we, we challenged you last week to think in terms of what did Christian life look like for you in your past? And is there anything where you were stronger or things that you were doing in your past that need to be rekindled today? Because the author of Hebrews reminds them, he says, remember in your former days, this is how you were living. You were enduring persecutions. Man, you were holding fast to the faith. And challenges them to keep doing those things or to start doing those things again. So my challenge to you last week was, man, think back in your life. Has there been anything that you have uh, stopped doing that you used to previously do in your Christian life that needs to be rekindled to keep you holding fast to the very end? All right, so that brings us to Hebrews chapter 11 today. It's a very familiar chapter to us. It's a long chapter, so we're obviously not going to be able to cover it as in detail as maybe we would like because we are going to cover it all today in one sitting. And so Hebrews chapter 11, I want to read for us uh, just the first couple of verses to get us started. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Our summary sentence for today, persevering faith is not flawless faith, but it does endure the worst circumstances and situations 
by believing that the future promises of God will be fulfilled eventually while seeing God's active presence today with spiritual eyes. Persevering faith is not flawless faith, but it does endure the worst circumstances and situations by believing that the future promises of God will be fulfilled eventually while seeing God's active presence today with spiritual eyes. For our kids, true faith in God means we trust him to keep his promises when times are hardest. That's what we see there in that verse 3. It says, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Right? So he's, he's basing his, um, his claims in the first two verses on what happened in creation. So we back up to verses 1 and 2. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? So kind of to, to bring that to our language, faith is simply believing in the promises of God that they will be fulfilled. And it's also seeing God working in the present, even if we can't see it with our physical eyes. Okay, so both aspects involve things that we can't see currently. So there's an aspect of faith where we're believing in the future. We're believing that things will happen in the future, even though we can't see it today. We believe that it will happen in the future. But it's also believing that God is at work today, even if we can't see it physically with our eyes. Because what we'll see here in this chapter with the different Old Testament people, man, they, they were experiencing some of the fulfillment of God's promises but they were also looking toward and longing for greater fulfillment down the road. But they were able to recognize God's working in the present in their life. Okay, so faith carries this idea of being able to anticipate the future, to believe wholeheartedly that God is going to do something in the future, while also believing that God is still very active and present today, doing things in our midst, even if we can't always see it with our physical eyes. Remember Jacob when um, he has the, the dream and he sees the angels going back and forth from heaven to earth on, on that ladder. And he wakes up and, and kind of confesses, man, I had no idea that these things were happening around me. Right? Think about um, the, some of the missionary stories that we've talked about in the past where missionary was kind of holding his ground, really praying for God's protection. There were natives that were kind of bearing in, ready to kill this missionary and his family. And for whatever reason, they don't. And then they get saved down the road, and then they confess to the missionary, hey, we were going to kill you that night, but there were, there were these people in white, and they were glowing, and they had swords, and we just felt like we couldn't penetrate your house. Right? The missionary had no idea they were there, but he's clinging in faith to God's protection in the midst of that house as though he does believe that there are angels surrounding him. Right? So faith has the, has the idea of, man, I believe things are going to happen in the future, but I also believe that God is preserving me right now in the present, even if I can't see it with my physical eyes. Right? So we talk about Romans eight twenty eight, God works all things for the good of his children, but we don't always see the good. Right? Even as we go through a difficult situation and come out of the difficult situation, we may not be able to document all of the good things that God is doing, but we believe wholeheartedly that they're there even if we can't see them. That's what's contained here in this description of faith by the author. Persevering faith, it's not flawless faith. We're going to see that these individuals listed here, I mean, they're, they're not guiltless. They, they, they have sins. They have their own messes. But it does endure the worst circumstances and situations by believing the future promises of God will be fulfilled while seeing God's active presence today with spiritual eyes. All right, back up in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 38, the author had said, but by right, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, 
my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So he, he indicates the idea here that those who are truly belonging to God, they live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Chapter 11 becomes the description of what that looks like. All right? If you remember back in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, and our introduction is a little bit longer today because I want us to really grasp what faith is before we jump into the text. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12 author says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right? So we were told back in chapter 6 to imitate those who inherit the promises through faith and patience. And that's what we see here in chapter 11. We see examples of people that we can imitate. Right? We grow in faith by modeling the faithful people um, that we see both in the Old Testament Man, and even people that we see today that we would consider faithful. We, we model their faith in order to keep persevering in our own faith. Another thing that I would, I would note to you as a means of introduction is that faith's value, I mean, it's based on the object that we're putting our confidence in, right? So we can say we have faith in a lot of different things, but that faith's value is really tied to the object of the confidence that we're putting our faith in, right? And so when we talk about having faith in God, our depth of faith is going to be tied to our, our depth of understanding of who God is. The, the deeper our understanding of who God is and how he works and how he functions, the, the more confidence that we have in him, our faith is going to increase in that, right? To the point that, man, I think the goal for us as Christians is that we have such faith in God and his promises that something would drastically have to change things for them not to come true right? Like we're not, we're not putting faith in God and saying, man, I hope these things happen. I, I hope some things change in this world and, and God fulfills his promises. Instead, our perspective is, man, these things are going to happen, right? Like these things will happen because of how confident I am on who God is and the ways that he works. Like something would have to intervene and stop God from accomplishing these things versus us holding out hope that somehow God comes through for us. All right, so faith's value is directly tied to the object that we're putting our confidence in. What's, what's key here, I think, in Hebrews chapter 11 is how these people are commended for their faith. Commendation is given based on their unwavering faith. Look with me again in, verses, um, in verse 2. For by it the people of old received their commendation. You skip down to verse 39, and we're going to read through this whole chapter as we work through it today. But it says at the end of this chapter, verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith. So everybody in this chapter is being commended for their faith. And it's given to them based on their unwavering faith. That commendation is being given to them based on their unwavering faith. We see the idea of faith in Romans chapter 3 and in Philippians chapter 3. When Paul is talking about how righteousness comes to us, that it doesn't come through the law, it doesn't come through works, that it comes through our faith in the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That's the type of faith that these people have, and they are commended for it. And what's really neat to see is that by believing in God, look at some of the descriptive words that are used for these people's testimony. I wrote down in my notes, by faith, the Old Testament heroes were enabled to live to deserve a testimony of being righteous of pleasing God, and of not shaming him. Look what is said about these people, or specifically some of these people, 
but I think it applies to all of them. Verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then you skip down to verse 16. This is talking about kind of the the, the patriarchs in general. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Man, I don't know about you, but I want these I want these descriptive words applied to me. Like I want to live my life in such a way that I'm commended for my faith, that I'm viewed as righteous, that I'm viewed as pleasing to God, that I'm viewed as an individual that God is not ashamed to be my God by the faith that I demonstrate in him. These are words that are used of these Old Testament heroes. I think what's really unique too here is that for some of these guys, their marks of faith aren't always that big. Right, like you read through some of these, and you're like, man, some of these guys, like, I mean, they really got it done from a faith standpoint. I mean, they were put in a very difficult situation. They responded with some really drastic faith. Others of these, it's kind of like, eh, that's not that's not as impressive, right? Like, maybe not as big of a deal, right? Like, you might even read about Enoch and say, why is that dude even there, right? Because if you even go back to the book of Genesis and you read about him, it's like, hey, walked with God, and we kind of minimize that and we say. Man, some of these other guys like stopped the mouths of lions, right? Enoch, Enoch walked with God. But think about how long Enoch lived, right? 365 years on this earth. And what was known about him was that he walked with God. Not for a short period of time, not later in life. Man, it seems like the bulk of his life is described as being one who walked with God. But regardless of the scale of these people's faith, they're all commended in the same way for trusting God in the midst of the unique circumstances that God gave to them. And I don't think these are the only marks that are true about them, right? So it's not that they, they did one, one thing and checked off a box and God says, okay, you're pleasing to me because that was awesome, right? Like, like these marks that are described here, what these people did, it's not like a one-time thing. Okay, you showed faith in God, great. You're good to go. Whatever you want to do the rest of your life is fine. These are highlighted points in their life that are really descriptors of what really their entire life was looking like once they came to faith. So he highlights some key points, but man, I think what's true here is that there's some different scales as far as how impressive the faith demonstration is, but we also have to keep in mind these aren't the only times they demonstrated faith either, right? They're commended for their faith, at various degrees, various ways, and it being demonstrated, okay? Faith, simply, from an understanding point for us as we move forward, faith is trusting truth by taking God at his word and living your life accordingly. So we've kind of simplified that definition over the years here, saying that faith is trusting truth, okay? That truth comes to us from God through his word, and to really trust truth means to live our life accordingly to what we've read in God's word. So when we talk about faith, what do we mean by that? It's not some obscure type mindset. It's really just saying, man, I trust what I read about God. I trust what God has revealed about himself. And I'm going to live my life according to what he's told me. Okay? 
Faith is trusting truth, taking God at his word and living your life accordingly. It's not optimism. It's not a feeling. It's not confidence without evidence. It's not a hunch. It's a dynamic certainty about what God has promised. How do I increase my faith? Man, I increase my knowledge of who God is through his word. I increase my knowledge of the promises that he's made. The more I understand about him, the more I understand about his promises, the more I'm going to trust him, the more faith I'm going to have in him. So when circumstances get hard, I'm more likely to cling to him based on what I know about him. Faith celebrates now the reality of future blessings. Okay, so a maturing Christian is able to reach into the future and say, I know these things are going to happen. I know these things are true down the road. I'm going to live as though they are true today. Because I give them value in the future, I'm going to give them value today. And so it shapes the way that I make decisions on a daily basis. It shaped the way that Moses made decisions, right? Moses says, man, Egypt's a great, great place. It's got a lot of pleasurable things going on. But what does the passage say? Man, it says he desired something better, something down the road, something down the future. He says, I'm going to seize control of that today. I'm going to live in light of how valuable I think it is in the future by making decisions today that reflect that. It gives us the ability to see the future and to filter things going on now through a spiritual lens of God being at work. Here's how J. Oswald Sanders said it. Faith enables the believer to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. It's looking into the future, believing the things that are supposed to happen in the future, clinging to them today, and believing that God is at work today and not just in the future. I think we, we, we see clearly in this passage, too, that faith obeys that God's word never fails and therefore must be obeyed at all costs, no matter the circumstances or the consequences. At the back end of this chapter, we see people who choose to be obedient to God, even though it means they're going to be cut in half, right? Even though it means they're going to be thrown into the fire, even though it means they're going to be served as dinner to lions, right? They believe God no matter what the consequences are. Why? Because they believe in a better resurrection, even resurrection is talked about here, right? Like the idea of these women getting their, their kids back, and that takes place in First and Second Kings with Elijah and Elisha, two different scenarios where women lost their children, and, and these prophets were able to raise them back from the dead. Abraham's even described as getting his son virtually back from the dead because he was good as gone on that, on that altar, right? But the better resurrection are the people that actually die at the end of this chapter, says they get a better resurrection because they're resurrected to a totally different type of life, right? Faith enables to believe, uh, enables us to obey no matter the consequences or the circumstances. Listen to this. Faith enables the believer to understand what others can't, to see what others don't, and to do what others won't. Faith enables the believer to understand what others can't, to see what others don't, and to do what others won't. Sometimes you get a glimpse of people who are going through some really trying circumstances, and you get to see their expression of faith in God, and you step back and you say, the only way that makes sense is if something spiritual is going on in that person, because everything else would tell you to react differently to that. Man, we were really blessed to have um, one of our former middle school students speak in chapel this week. It's a kid who had a devastating car wreck earlier this school year. 
and to know this kid before the car wreck, you probably wouldn't have been impressed a whole lot with him, and he would describe himself that way, like kind of lazy, kind of uncaring about anything that wasn't called football, right? Um, Just kind of going through life and just real selfish with his time, real selfish just about who he is. And I'm going to tell you, I would have never, ever, ever under any scenario pictured me bringing him back to speak in a chapel service. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen, right? And then this kid has this car wreck, and his life is drastically changed. And I'm having a conversation with him on the side, and I'm thinking, I mean, this isn't the same kid. There's something going on inside of him that's way different than anything I've ever experienced. And so on the spot, I just said, I need you to come speak in chapel. I need you to come share with, with 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 our middle school students what's going on. Right? And so he gets up there and he's talking about his experience. And he's, he's talking about how, man, I've, I've lost my football career, potentially, moving forward. I've definitely lost my junior season of football. It's the only thing that's ever mattered to me in life. And I may never play football again. And he said, but let me tell you something. If I could choose for these things to be different, I would not. He said, I would not go back and change anything about the last two months of my life. He said, I've seen God do too much good in it. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, this is the same kid. This is the same kid that came through our middle school who, who we thought, man, will he ever get it? Will he ever understand? And there's something going on in him supernaturally. Holy Spirit allowing him to filter his circumstances through God's word to where, man, he understands things that others can't. He's seeing what others don't see, right? Like, like the lost world would say, why are you not angry with God? Like he took something that you love away from you. Tanner's saying, man, I don't want it back right now. Like, like, there's too much good going on in my life to say that I would want things to be different. Man, faith enables that type of perspective. It allows us to see future blessings. It allows us to see better things than things around us. Persevering faith doesn't imply perfection. All right, so we've been talking a lot about persevering faith in this book of Hebrews. It doesn't imply perfection. These Old Testament heroes that were listed here, I mean, they're full of failures and shortcomings, right? Like you read through this list and it's not a perfect list of people. I mean, we see people like Abraham and Moses and David. I mean, we can make a list of things that they did wrong. We can make a list of things that Jacob did wrong. We can can list off the flaws. But remember, in the context of what we're studying here in Hebrews is that, man, our sins are remembered no more. Right, like, like, the, like the blood of Jesus cleanses us, saves us, moves us forward in a way where, man, he's dealt with those flaws. They're committed for their faith, not held accountable for their sins because the blood of Jesus covers them now. Right, And so when we talk about persevering faith, we're not talking about perfection because these guys are far from perfect. But we are talking about people who kept coming back to God, kept trusting God, even when they fell, even when they sinned, right? They came back to him. They came back to him, and they kept persevering, and for many of them, it says, until they died, right? Like, they persevered to the point of death. I was, I was challenged this week, because um, I'm reading this stuff. I mean, I'm believing this stuff, and I'm even trying to encourage people in our, my accountability group with some of this stuff, right? That, man, God cleanses us. Doesn't matter what we're guilty of. Doesn't matter what sins we've committed. Man, we're, we're, we're free from that. God forgives us from that. His blood is good enough to wash us from that, right? But I'm not always great at separating, or I'm, I'm probably guilty of separating, like, people outside of this context from experiencing the same things that we're talking about. 
because this week uh, my alma mater, Trin- or, uh, Liberty, hired a new head football coach who is a guy with a very tainted past, right? Like he's had some moral failings at his previous school and was fired for it. And it's been about two years since he was fired, longer since he actually was guilty of some of those things. And so he gets hired by, by my Christian university to be the new head football coach. And this guy coached in the SEC, so he's big time news, right? And my immediate thought is, what a horrible move. Like, like this guy is a filthy, dirty individual. Like he has no business coaching at my school. He has no business leading a Christian school's football program, right? And so I'm, I'm just kind of like, like very judgmental of it. I'm just like, man, what a, what a really silly move for our school to make in light of the things that he's guilty of. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to sit down and study Hebrews. And I'm like, man, I love the better priest. I love the better sacrifice, right? Like I love how he remembers my sins no more, but remembers everybody else's, right? Like, so I'm very guilty of, man, my accountability group fits into this. I fit into this. Like the people closest to me, this applies to. But anybody else outside of this context, man, we need to, we need to condemn them forever, potentially, for their sins. And then I came across this, across this quote in one of my commentaries that I was reading, In every saint, there is always to be found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. There is no reason, therefore, why the fault from which we labor should break us or discourage us, provided we go on by faith in the race for our calling. I mean, that's powerful because what that says is that, man, every single person in this list that's committed for their faith had flaws right? Like David was guilty of sexual immorality and continues on as king of Israel, right? If you told me my alma mater hired King David to lead the football program, I'd have been like, what a fantastic hire, right? Like we got it right, right? And somebody would say, yeah, but he had that thing with Bathsheba. Eh, who cares? Like everything else about this guy, like you see faith and you see obedience, which is, I think is probably a lot of true about this guy that we did hire, right? Like this guy, this guy's from a strong Christian background. He's the, he's the football coach in the movie, The Blind Side, right? He's the high school coach. Um, and it was, even, it was even cool, like at his press conference at Liberty, he said that the, the parents of Michael Orr, who are the parents, uh, the you know, adopted parents in the movie, they're there at the press conference, right? So they haven't turned their back on him. His wife and his three older daughters are all right down there loving on him, supporting him, Right? The people that, if anybody's going to hold anything against this guy, they get first right to do that. Right? This is the wife that was cheated on. These are the daughters that were let down, and they're right there. Man, loving on him, smiling on him, wanting to see him succeed. Now, you can talk about whether or not he should be leading a football program or not. But what shouldn't be discounted so quickly is whether this guy's really a genuine man of faith or not. Because everybody in this list is, is flawed. And everything you hear in that press conference I don't know that I could have said it better if it's a guy who's gotten things right with God. Man, he's demonstrating the fact that, man, every saint has reprehensible activity, but a true sign of faith is that we come back in our race for our calling. And that certainly seems to be what's true about him. And and I don't want to be at the point where where I'm giving the benefit of the doubt to somebody who's claiming the blood of Jesus and not discounting the ability of that blood to cover that person. Persevering faith is concerned with endurance, not about perfection. So the idea here is, will we die in our faith or will we fall back? These people in the Old Testament had the chance to fall back. Verse 15, 
if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. They kept pushing forward. All right, let's get into our outline and we'll breeze right through this. I told you the introduction was a little bit longer today. I want us to see what faith is. It's trusting truth. It's trusting the promises of God down the line as being true today. It's believing that God is at work around us even when we don't see it with our physical eyes. We have the spiritual comprehension to know he's doing something in our midst, okay? So let's talk about faith defined and to back up for our kids, for them to write down a definition, faith is trusting truth about God from his word so that it shapes the way that we live our life. It's trusting truth about God from his word so that it shapes the way that we live our life. All right, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In our notes, number one, trust that God will work his promises in the future. Trust that God will work his promises in the future. The promises of God are our foundation for hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 is a passage that echoes a lot of the similar themes that we're reading about here in Hebrews. It says, um, do not let your, uh, hang on, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Man, Peter talks about this great hope that's being stored up for us. And we can't see it right now. We can't fully experience it right now. But man, it gives us an unbelievable joy in the present as we wait for it. The deeper uh, the faith that we have, it leads to a more confident hope that keeps us persevering and not shrinking back. There's a solid conviction resting on God's word that makes the future present. It considers God's promises to be present now. So when we talk about faith, What type of faith is commendable before God? It's a faith that trusts that God will work his promises in the future. But number two, it's a faith that trusts that God is working his promises now, that he's at work now. It's a solid conviction resting on God's words that makes the invisible seen. God's working may be veiled, but it's realized in our hearts, right? So we may not be able to see all the good, We may not be able to understand exactly why God's doing it the way that he's doing it. But through our spiritual eyes, we believe and recognize that God is up to something in our midst. It's believing those promises, having faith and trust that God will carry through what he's promised to carry through. One commentator said that faith is our organ for seeing the unseen spiritual world around us at work. So we don't see it with our eyes. We see God work around us through our faith. We need to trust that God is working his promises now. He'll certainly work them in the future. We want to trust that he's working them now as well. 
Number three, trust that God created and controls this universe. This is kind of the mark of what it means to have a biblical worldview, to have the Christian worldview that sees everything filtered through the idea of God creating. Verse three, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Why does he bring this up? He brings this up because what he's saying is that here's an example of God speaking something into existence that's not there already by his power. He is speaking his promises into his existence. He speaks his work into existence, right? Because it generates, it originates with him. The universe finds its structure and purpose from its origin of creation with him. If you go to Colossians chapter 1, I think we get a deeper picture of what the author of Hebrews has in mind here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the picture here is that God is the creator, he's the sustainer, and he's the end goal of creation. What he speaks comes into reality, right? And so, so we see the, the first mark of faith is believing that we all come from, from God's creation, that God got everything started, right? And so we believe that, we trust in that. We may not always have the scientific evidence to prove that, right? Nobody was there to see it, right? Like Adam and Eve get created after the fact of all that being created. So there's nobody there that could write down and say, man, I was there and I saw it. The best we have is Moses writing down the book of Genesis from what God told him to write down about what happened. So there's an element of faith to our belief in creation versus evolution. Because if evolution's true, man, it redefines what the purpose of life is. If creation's true, it has its own definition for the purpose of life. We trust that God created and controls this universe. Number four, we trust that God exists as he has revealed himself. Biblical faith believes that God not only exists, but that he exists in the ways that he has revealed himself. In verse 6, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's not sufficient enough to just believe in God's existence alone, because even the demons believe. Right? Like there's a, there's a theological perspective that would say that, yes, I believe in a God. I believe in a higher power. I believe in something out there. But it's not biblical Christianity because they don't believe God exists in the way that he has revealed himself. Right? Like they may believe in a higher power, but they don't believe in what God's word has to say about that higher power. Biblical faith not only believes in the existence of God, it believes that God is who he claims to be in his word. That's what we see here in this passage in verse 6. Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that brings us to number five. Trust that God is good and needed by you. Not just that he exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. The connection here is that we need to see that we need the reward that he has that he can give to us. We need to come believing that it's made available to us, right? So what does biblical faith, what does saving faith look like? 
Well, man, it's a confession that I believe that God exists and that he exists in the exact ways that he's revealed himself to exist. And I believe that I need him. I need this God, right? Like it's a recognition, it's a humble recognition that, man, I can't attain righteousness on my own. I need the reward that he offers, right? Like there's sometimes rewards are extended to you and you say, I don't need that, right? Some of us have experienced that in trying to motivate our kids. Hey, if you'll do this, I'll give you this. And the kid says, that's not good enough. I'd rather rather keep doing what I'm doing, right? Like you have to incentivize it better than what you just offered me. Biblical faith says, man, the incentive is good. Like you are good. I need what you have to offer me. It's exactly what Rahab confesses in the, in the narrative uh, back in the Old Testament. You read the book of Joshua. She says, I need your God. Like everybody in the city recognizes that Jericho is about to fall and that, that your God has given you the land. Everybody's trying to come up with their own salvation methods for how to weather this. She's the only person in the city that says, can you please take me with you? Right, like she says, I need your God. So biblical faith is believing that God exists exactly how he's revealed himself, and it's saying, I need that God. I need that God, right? I need the reward that he offers, okay? So we trust that he works his promises in the future. We trust that he's working his promises now. We trust that he created and controls the universe. We trust that he exists as he's revealed himself. We trust that he's a good God and that he's needed, that he's needed by us. And it pleases him when we express that type of faith. It pleases him for us to confess that we see him as good and that we need him. It pleases him when, when, when we demonstrate a full confidence and trust. I mean, I experienced this as a dad. I experienced the frustration side and the pleasing side when my kids choose to express confidence and trust in me and when they choose not to. Man, it's so encouraging when your child demonstrates that they believe you, they trust you, and they think you're working good for them. It's so frustrating when they think that you're not, even though that you are, and they reject it, right? And they don't see that you're good, and they don't want to trust you. And you're trying to fix that thinking, like you're trying to help them see, man, I'm good, and I love you, and I want what's best for you, and you're not trusting that. You're not seeing that. So we get glimpses of that as parents, God is pleased when we trust him this way, okay? So that's kind of a description of how faith is defined in this chapter. Let's see how faith is described looking at these individuals. And here's the thing. There's a different sermon for every one of these individuals probably, right? And so I'm about to blow through this list and give you one thing to remember from each story because I want to give you the big picture perspective with the chance for you to go back and study this more in depth if you want to. So let's back up and we'll close by just highlighting some key points from each person in this list. So back to verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Number one, Abel, remember that we trust God as a means of worship. We trust God as a means of worship. Our faith, our trust It's a means of worship to God. It's how we worship God. Yes, we come on a Sunday morning. Yes, we sing songs. Yes, we read the Bible. We study the Bible. All that's considered worship as well. But it's also worship when we step out of this room and we experience difficulties this week and we trust him fully. 
That's a means of worship. It's a means of worship. We trust God as a means of worship, as Abel did when he came and offered this sacrifice out of obedience. He was worshiping God through his trust. All right, next individual in our list. Verse five, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Number two, Enoch, trust God as a way of life, as a way of life, right? There may be big opportunities for you to demonstrate your faith, right? Some of us may face a lion's den one day, or some, some of us may face a firing line one day where, where our life is on the line and we have to say yes to Jesus and no to this world. But for the most part, we're going to have to go to work and we're going to have to deal with difficult bosses and, and difficult situations and not getting pay raises that we thought we should get and having to deal with difficult kids. And we're going to have to demonstrate trust in those times as well, Right? Like, some of us would love the big opportunities. Give me the big opportunities where I get to show that I'm a Christian. And God's saying, man, just show that you're a Christian on the day-to-day basis, right? Be like Enoch. However long you live, and it won't be 365 years, however long you live, man, just walk with God in the midst of that life. Everything that comes your way, trust God in the midst of it. Next, um, skip down to verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Number three is Noah. Trust God when obeying doesn't make sense to others. Trust God when obeying doesn't make sense to others. There's going to be times where you're called and, and convicted and challenged to do something to obey God in a certain way that others would say, man, you're crazy for doing that. Like, it doesn't make sense that you would do that. And not just lost people, but maybe even Christians in your life that'll say, man, that just doesn't make sense to live life that way. And everything inside of you, all the promptings of the Holy Spirit tell you this is needed for you to be fully obedient, right? You, you may be called to step out in an attitude of faith and, and to do something that just doesn't make sense to anybody else. And it didn't make sense for Noah to do it either, right? Like Noah begins to construct this ark. He's ridiculed by all of his friends, ridiculed by all of his acquaintances. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why are you investing all of your money, all of your finances, everything into this way of life? It just doesn't make sense. And Noah's like, well, it makes full sense. There's a flood coming, right? Like I, I can see into the future and I can see God's promise in the future and that thing's gonna happen, and I got to get ready for it. And so Noah was completely driven to live his life based on an unforeseen flood. But for him, man, I bet he woke up every day thinking, the rains are coming, right? Like he may have woken up thinking, oh my gosh, I thought I, thought I heard rain, right? Like I got to get, get up and I got to get to work, right? Like he believed in an unseen flood. Man, it dictated the way he's lived his life. Didn't matter that people would have ridiculed him, made fun of him. Didn't matter that it didn't make sense to other people. He kept trusting God in the midst of that. Next, we skip down to verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. You skip down a little bit further. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. For Abraham and Sarah trust God when things seem impossible. When things seem impossible, it's a great opportunity for, for us to trust God. There may be times where, where, where you're asked to, to go places you don't know where you're going or to trust that God's going to do things in ways that you don't know how he's going to do it or when he's going to do it. Or God may ask you to do things and you don't know why he's asking you to do those things. All of that happened in Abraham's life, right? Like He's told to get up and move and he has no idea where he's going, right? He's, he's told that he's going to have kids even though he's way past the age of having kids. And he's told that it's going to happen, but just not when. So he keeps getting older and older and older, and it becomes more impossible, more impossible, more impossible. Then he finally gets his child, and he's told to kill his child on an altar. And he has no idea why. But it says, even in the midst of that, Abraham believed, man, if I go through with this, this boy's coming back from the dead. Why? Because God's already told me Isaac's the promised one. It wasn't Ishmael, wasn't anybody else. It's Isaac. And so if I kill Isaac, he has to come back from the dead. That's the type of faith that Abraham had. That even if this boy dies, he has to come back from the dead because God is obligated to bring him back from the dead because he's promised that Isaac will be the chosen one. That's the type of faith that Abraham had. He didn't know when, he didn't know where, he didn't know how or why, but he trusted God when things seemed impossible. Next, we see Isaac and Jacob. It says in verse 20, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. For those patriarchs, we see the example that we are to trust God when you have to wait. Trust God when you have to wait. These guys didn't see all the fulfillment of God's promises. These guys didn't see life in the promised land, right? Joseph dies in Egypt and he says, don't leave my bones here. Take me with you when you leave because that's where I'm supposed to be resting. That's the promise that I'm clinging to, right? So these patriarchs, these were guys who God had promised things to and they keep pushing off the blessings and they keep pushing off the waiting, anticipating that God would keep his promises. We come to Moses in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. For Moses, we're reminded that we trust God when the world is most appealing. When the world was most appealing. Man, we've we've probably all seen versions of the, the Moses story, the Exodus, the Ten Commandments. We always see that picture of what life looked like for Moses in Egypt. 
how he's this prince in waiting and he's got everything at his fingertips and he's got women and servants and, and everything at his disposal. And then he goes and gets down in the mud with his people and begins to build and, and, and then, he, then he kills the guy and has to flee into the wilderness and then he gets old and, and he kind of comes back hobbling and brings the people out. And, and if you're like me, I watch it and I'm like, man, Egypt looked great right? Like, like life in Egypt looked awesome. He could have just become Pharaoh and then released the people that way, right? But, but it says Moses said, you know what? What God's promise is better than everything that Egypt has to offer. It's better than everything that Egypt has to offer. He trusted God when, when the world was most appealing. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down, after they had been encircled for seven days. Israel reminds us here to trust God when facing your greatest enemies. Trust God when facing your greatest enemies because he can deliver. That brings us to Rahab in verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab reminds us to trust God when others are doing the wrong thing. Trust God when others are doing the wrong thing. Rahab's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And, man, I, I was reminded this week in, in looking at it. You go back and read the narrative. Remember we said that the children of Israel, back at the beginning of Hebrews, we talked about how they would not go into the promised land. Why? Because they were scared to death of what the spies came back and said. Right? Like, these people are big and they're giants and, and they're going to slaughter us and, and we can't do this. You read Rahab's account and she says, we've heard about what your God was doing and the people that he had already delivered, and we've been scared for 40-plus years of you guys coming in here, right? Like, they weren't recently scared. They've been scared the whole time the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness because they were scared to come in. Rahab gives some insight, and she says, man, we're the ones that have been scared this whole time. We're terrified of you guys. She's the only one that says, you know what? I'm ready to leave everything to go be with you guys, though, right? So she, she confesses what everybody confesses. We've seen what your God does. We're scared to death of him. She's the only one that says, take me with you, please. Right? Like she wants to flip teams. She wants to change allegiances. She shows faith when everybody else is doing the wrong thing. We keep reading here to wrap up. Verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Man, highlighting like all these great stories. Trust God when situations seem risky and dangerous. you got this whole group of other people here, some named, some not named. But they face some of the most risky, dangerous, difficult situations, and they come out like soaring, right? Like they're, like they're being delivered in the midst of these things. You, you, you read about the lions and you start thinking, okay, you've got David who killed lions before he was ever a king. You've got Samson who killed a lion. You've got uh, Daniel who, who calmed the lions, right? Like he was in the presence and wasn't eaten by lions. So you got the shutting of the lion's mouth there. Then you got the, 
the, the enduring of the fire, you think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who, who were thrown into the fire and they endured it and they were delivered. And so you're thinking, man, we serve a great God that can get us out of any situation, right? And so we should trust him in the midst of risky and dangerous. But then you have this whole other group of people, right? Number 10, trust God when he doesn't deliver from the human perspective. Because for every Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that aren't burned by the fire, it says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. You got King David who has everything. You got some of these other guys who are like scraggling around trying to find food. There's a lot of similarities about these people in this chapter, right? They all demonstrate faith. They all demonstrate trust. They've all got these marks of obedience. But there's some differences too because God delivers some of them and doesn't deliver the others from a human perspective. Some of them get out of it and some of them perish in it. They die in it. But all of them keep trusting God in the midst of those circumstances. They keep trusting God in the midst of those circumstances. From an application standpoint this morning, I mean, all of this stuff's application, right? Like, like know what true biblical faith is and, and show it, demonstrate it by trusting in God for all of these different reasons, right? From an application perspective, I think it's really important that you realize you are not the first to go through any of your experiences. You're not the first Christian to go through anything that you're dealing with. Right? You're not the first Christian to lose a loved one to death. You're not the first Christian to find out a loved one has cancer. You're not the first Christian to lose their job. You're not the first Christian to have to quit their job. You're not the first Christian to have wayward kids. You're not the first Christian to lose their kids. Right? Like You read this list, and man, every hardship has been faced by a Christian at some point. And there have been Christians all throughout history that have demonstrated biblical faith in the midst of it. So nobody's unique here. Nobody has this really crazy special circumstance that no other Christian has, has, has had to face. The expectation is that all of us can demonstrate biblical faith in the midst of whatever circumstance it is that we have. So the questions that I want to leave you with is, will your faith carry you through any deprivation, persecution, or death that you face? Do you have the type of faith that would allow you to hold fast if everything's being taken away from you, right? Like all the worldly necessities, the safety and security, even your breath of life. Does your biblical faith hold fast to God and trust his future promises enough? These things can be taken away and you keep trusting him in the midst of it. Second question is, what are you doing to ensure that it will carry you through that? Is there anything that you're actively doing? And, and the two things that I wrote down, man, we've got to know the faithful one. We've got to do everything that we can to immerse ourselves in knowing this God that's supposed to keep his promises. Because I'm telling you, when things get tough, you really decide how valuable that object is that you're putting your confidence in. And we can't wait until the day of. And we got to know our God that we believe in. And then I think, the, the, the other side is that we spend time with faithful people. You, you want to be a faithful person? Man, put yourself around people that demonstrate biblical faith. Put yourself around the same people that you want to be like. 
right? We can't go hang out with any of these Old Testament people. We can read all about them, though, which is great. But almost all of us, if not every one of us, has faithful people in our life that we can put ourselves right next to and learn from and model and emulate, lean on when things are really tough. Biblical faith, man, it's trusting God, seeing the the end, seeing those future promises, reaching to the future, pulling them to the present and saying, I believe them right now. I believe them right now, and I'm going to trust God through the most difficult times in my life. Let's pray together. God, we we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for reminding us of of people in the past that have been faithful to trust you through some of the, the hardest times. And God, we have people right now that are going through some of the hardest times they've ever had to go through. But God, I pray that they would see themselves not in a unique situation. God, they're in the type of situations that Christians have always found themselves in. And so God, because of that truth, I pray that it would help all of us to see the necessity to demonstrate faith when times are tough. That we believe in you and your promises. That we see things with spiritual eyes even when we can't see them with our physical eyes that we understand things that just don't make sense to other people, causing us to, to do things that other, people's, other people would never do. God, we want this type of faith that's described here. And we know that persevering faith isn't flawless faith, and so God, we know that we're gonna certainly need you during times where we, we fall and we fail, and we're so thankful that, that Jesus is that better sacrifice. God, give us the faith that we need to be commendable before you the type of faith that falls at times but keeps coming back and keeps persevering to the, to the point of death. God, we want to be people that are enduring and making it to the end. And when we wander, we want to come right back to you. So God, keep us trusting in you when things are most difficult. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.